0: From News Talk 580-1059-KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler.
1: California has long suffered from an educational achievement gap between the wealthiest and poorest students, many of whom are not English-speaking. About a decade ago, Governor Jerry Brown and the state legislature made a dramatic shift in how the state funds K-12 education with something called the Local Control Funding Formula. In short, the idea was to provide more money to school districts with high-need students. The question is, has it worked statewide? We'll ask Julian LaFartun, a research fellow with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California who specializes in K-12 education and is an author of a recent report on that very issue. We'll then look to some specific examples of local success with Carolyn Jones, a reporter with EdSource, a journalistic website devoted to California education, and Alma Lopez, a Livingston School District middle school counselor who was recently named the National Counselor of the Year by the American School Counselor Association.
2: Funding for the MADI report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students Serving Students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the MADI Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the MADI Report with Executive Director of the MADI Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. The COVID pandemic has exposed and in some ways exacerbated problems that have always been lurking just beneath the surface. One prime example is K-12 education. The disproportionate effects the pandemic has had on the educational attainment of people of color and in low-income communities has increased concerns over that gap that they may be actually in, that gap may be increasing the surplus in the state budget and with federal funding indicates that there's going to be an influx of additional dollars going to k-12 education in certain school districts a large portion of that state funding is going to come through something called the local control funding formula recently the Nonpartisan public policy institute of california did a study and on whether this increased funding for high need school districts is actually improving school outcomes the author of that report Julie, Julian Lafotune is our guest today. Welcome to the Ma report. Thanks, Mark. So So Julian, let me begin with this. Um, can you give our folks a little background on how schools are actually funded? Um, where exactly does the money come from?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So California's K through 12 schools are mostly funded through state and local dollars. So the state provides the largest share, um, about 60% of total funding, uh, local revenues, and this is mostly from property taxes. Um, collected on local properties that contributes a little less than a third and then the federal government chips in the rest um, around nine percent in most years mainly through the title one program and the national school lunch program Uh, but as you mentioned this year there's a lot more federal funding
1: yeah and so let's focus on on state funding for a second so you know prior to this thing called local control funding formula how exactly uh, were school funds the state funds allocated to school districts
0: So before the local control funding formula or LCFF, as it's sometimes called, we had something called the revenue limit system. So there's a set amount of funding per student. It was generally similar across districts. Um, The state basically would top off whatever a district didn't raise locally through their own property tax revenues. Um, And then there was a system of state categorical grants, so programs that districts could apply to um, and get additional funding on top of that. And so what LCFF did was to get rid of this system and consolidate it together into a single funding formula. Um, a weighted funding formula so that districts with more high-need students get additional funding uh, per student on top of a base grant. And that's referred to, um, the additional funding is referred to as supplemental and concentration grant funding.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry. The key thing to remember, I guess, with the old funding was they had these things called categoricals. Basically, he who has the gold makes the rule. So if the state was providing the funding, they were saying, here's how you're going to spend it. With LCFF, uh, it's more, you know, you tell the district, you spend it the way you think you need it Um, right it's more more flexibility
0: yeah so it's more funding for high-need students and then it's more flexibility and autonomy um, on behalf of districts
1: okay so so the idea behind the the local control funding for lcff LCFF is a lot easier way to say it than saying that long term each time but the idea is to provide more money for high-need school districts how exactly are high-need school districts uh, defined
0: so first, they're defined based on the number of high-need students they have. And the state defines high-need students as those that are either low-income, um, English learners, or foster youth. And so the way the formula works is that it gives uh, 20% on top of the per-student grant for every high-need student. And that's what's called the supplemental grant. Um, then districts, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, um, districts that have more than 55% high-need get an additional grant on top of that, the concentration Hello, that tops it up to 65% um, per additional high need student. And so to put that in simpler terms, basically a district that's 25% high need, um, they get about 5% more on top of their base grant. A district that's 50% gets 10% more. And then because of the concentration grants, a district that's 75%, they actually get 28% more funding. Um, so there's a lot of additional funding for those very high need districts.
1: Okay, we've got a minute left in this segment, but I didn't wanna ask you this, you know, let's, all this extra money, How's it being spent? What is it being spent on?
0: Yeah, so for the most part, um, what we've seen is that it's being spent on staffing. And that's not really a surprise because that's what most districts expenditures go towards. Um, So districts that saw, you know, the large LCFF funding increases, uh, they spent a lot of it on teachers, um, other support staff like counselors or librarians, nurses, teaching assistants. Um, But one area that it also went to um, were pensions and health benefits. Right. And so these, you know, with additional staff, um, come additional benefit costs, and then these benefit costs have also been going up a lot for districts. And so that- and a lot of
1: people don't understand that the benefits costs are a huge part of overall compensation. It could be 40% on top of the wages, so it's, it's really significant. Then you've also got the issue of pensions. Uh, that liability keeps increasing, so there's a need there. Uh, what about administration? Is much money going toward administration?
0: So we didn't see large increases in administration um, it's generally a small category and we didn't see large increases roughly proportional with what you'd expect given just the overall funding increase
1: and and what about class size
0: um, so class sizes went down um, across most districts and, and even more so in the districts that got more funding um, and so that's mainly coming through just hiring of a lot of, of new teachers especially um, during the early years of lcff
1: okay well up next um, how well targeted are these dollars are they generally spread across school districts or are they getting to the and are they getting to the high-need schools and high-need students that really need those dollars within those school districts that conversation in a moment this is the MADI report welcome back I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute we're talking with Julian LaFatoon a research fellow with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California who specializes in K-12 education and Julian I want to ask you about you know School districts um, that are receiving this post LCFF uh, local control funding formula money. Uh, is this a situation where they're getting all districts are getting more money, or is this kind of a zero sum situation where the high need districts are getting more money and the lesser needs districts are getting now less money.
0: Yeah, this is a, you know, it's an important question and it's something that's actually often misunderstood. And so since LCFF was passed, we've seen funding go up across basically all districts, districts of high and low need. um, And that's largely due to the recovery um, from the budget cuts of the Great Recession. Um, But under LCFF, the increases are concentrated um, in the highest need districts. And so in a sense, we've been fortunate enough in the state to have an economic situation where funding is going up in general because of the improved um, fortunes of the state since the recession and then we're directing even more of that money to the highest need districts since lcff was passed
1: yeah, so so the good news is the, the state is awash in, in in cash and they so nobody loses out with lcff question comes when if revenues go down then what um what happens to some of those lower need districts in terms of the money that they received? and they were they've seen articles now coming out where enrollments are actually declining um in certain districts and there's a whole other issue there so let's talk about these these high need students where are these high need students i assume some of them are in middle and high income districts are they losing out on this funding
0: yeah so of course you know high need districts are defined based on their high need students um, but it's not exclusively that the high need students are in the very highest need districts that get a lot of funding Um, in fact 20 percent of the state's high need students are in districts that don't get any concentration um, grant funding at all and if we look at the middle um, say between those that are between thirty to eighty percent high need, um, these districts serve half of the state's high need students, um, nearly sixty percent of the overall student body of the state, and yet they haven't seen as large of increases under LCFF. Um, so they're not losing necessarily, um, but they're not benefiting to the same degree, um, especially their high need students aren't as they might in other districts.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, not quite. They're getting some, but but not as much as as ones in the, in the you know the concentration districts. So. You've got um, high-need schools within school districts, but it seems like the way the money is allocated, it's really going to the school districts and not specifically to the school sites or to the high-need students individually. Um, just how well, then, are these t- these funds, these local funding formula funds targeted?
0: Yeah, so this is really a key question right financial decisions are made at the district level and that's where we target funding, but what we ultimately care about is you know how they spend it. Um, Do they spend it district wide or do they send it to the schools that generate. um, The high, you know the funding, based on the number of high need students that they have, and so we don't actually have great data from the state on this. um, But what we did in our report was to look at the data, the federal government collects on site school site levels spending and when we do that, we saw that in California. Um, basically for every dollar that a school site generates an additional funding, additional supplemental and concentration funding, um, we see their spending go up by 55 cents. So it's evidence of partial, but not complete targeting. Um, and that doesn't mean that funding was wasted or it goes nowhere. Uh, it's just really that it's spent more equally across school sites than the way that it's generated.
1: Yeah, there were there was though, I think it, w- it was in your report, um, the state auditor did a report and found that some districts, when the money's left over, they just roll it back into the general fund.
0: Exactly. That's not, and really so,
1: getting to the tar- that's not really targeting those high-need students.
0: No, and so there's, there's been a fix to that, but in general, it's something that we found also varied a lot by district. So some districts did, a, a, you know, a really good job of targeting and even targeted funding in ways that go kind of beyond um, what the LCFF formula would suggest, whereas others um, spent more equally across their schools and And the
1: reality is that that salaries and benefits, as we spoke earlier, are a huge part of, of a budget. And you know you start hiring teachers or giving wage increases, and then it, that rolls over and impacts budgets because now everything else is more expensive. It, it does eat up a lot of those dollars. Um, so, what are some of the obstacles to to better targeting these local control funding formula funds?
0: Well, I think one and this is maybe more of a technical point is just that a lot of services are paid out of the central office Um, so maybe they're meant to serve high-need students that's hard to know and that can be hard for districts to allocate as well you can think of something like an instructional software purchase right perhaps meant to help um, struggling students catch up Um, that's something that would be hard to say whether that's perfectly targeted or not Um, but back to the staffing issues that you mentioned um, that's really one of the more concrete obstacles to targeting funding to a specific site um, it's hard for high need school sites often to attract and retain experienced teachers, and so what they do actually is is often you see that um, high need school sites have more staff, more educators, so lower class sizes, mm-hmm. uh, but they have less edu- they have less experience and, and kind of less credentialed educators as well. Um, so in a certain sense, it's kind of a quality versus quantity trade off, um, and that's you know might constrain how effective the funding policy actually is.
1: Yeah. So so at some of these high need districts, what you're finding is they have just less experienced staff.
0: Exactly. So less experienced staff, just more of them. So they they spend more, but um, they have lower paid, less experienced staff.
1: Okay. Well, up next, has the state uh, increased funding for high-need students had a measurable impact in test scores and, and graduation rates? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, education is the number one expense in the state budget. Currently, California spends $120 billion alone on K-12 education. And that's educating 6.7 million students. Are we getting our money's worth? We're talking about that issue with Julian Lafartune a research fellow with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California and an expert in K-12 education. So Julian, um, is there any concern that the dollars generated by this local control funding formula, uh, a, a formula, I guess you'd call it, is, is it really being used to supplant or supplement um, K-12 education spending for high-need students?
0: You know, so this is always a concern, and we don't have perfect data when it comes down to what students are actually getting themselves at the student level, Um, but we do know that LCFF led to higher funding increases in the districts that have the most high-need kids, Um, in turn spent more on teachers and support staff and and lowered class sizes and provided new instructional materials, and then within districts, spending is higher in the schools with more high-need students. Um, even if the dollars aren't perfectly targeted they're still somewhat targeted and so all that is to say we have pretty good evidence that the funding has led to real increases in the resources for high need students
1: okay so it's so it's doing what it was intended to do so the latest revisions in this local control funding formula increase this thing called the concentration grant from a uh, portion from from 50% to 65% are there any stipulations on that extra funding
0: yeah, there are. and you know, as we talked about earlier, one of the struggles that districts have is attracting and retaining experienced staff at high need school sites. And so part of the rationale for this increase from fifty uh, to sixty five percent is to improve staffing at high need school sites. Um, so districts will have to show that they're using this extra funding to increase and improve staffing at their high need school sites. Uh, of course, whether this works to address disparities in you know either experience or credentials or staffing levels, um, that remains to be seen, but the hope is that the additional funding, Will at least be helpful for districts to do that.
1: You know, it sounds though, when I was reading that, when I was reading that from your report, it sounds a little bit like the old categorical, you know, imperative kind of thing. Where your your categorical funding, where you're saying you got to spend the money on this, they're going kind of back to those attaching some strings to the money.
0: Yeah, and you know, maybe in the long term, this is more of like a pendulum swinging, right? We swing from one level where it's a lot of state control to a lot of autonomy, and then perhaps we're you know on on the backswing, uh, so to say.
1: That's, that's, that's a really, that's a really good point, a good way to look at it. So has this, I guess the bottom line is, has this targeted funding uh, resulted in greater student success and has it narrowed the educational gap between the less, less affluent and the more affluent students with talk about things like graduation rates, college, you know, course, uh, prep course uh, completion rates, uh, eventual earnings of, of folks. I mean, is it making a difference?
0: Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's the big question, right? You know, how is this improving outcomes for students? Um, In our most recent report, we looked at this and we found that in the highest need districts that got the concentration grant funding, um, the funding led to improvements in test scores, um, both in math and ELA, English language arts across grades, Um, and it also looks like there were increases in A through G completion or college preparatory completion. Um, And so that's, that's the good news, that districts that saw the most extra funding are seeing positive improvements in outcomes. And of course, the hope and expectation is that these, you know, academic improvements Lead to greater earnings or economic mobility down the line Uh, of course it's still too early to tell there Um, the less positive news is that the narrowing of the achievement gaps haven't really you know been as impressive and slower and so part of this is because the funding targets districts and and not students and so you know some of the state's high need students just aren't in the districts that got a lot of this additional funding
1: so that so the districts are getting funding, but not all, not dollar for dollar, flowing directly to the school sites or to the high need student themselves. It gets siphoned off in, into different things at the district.
0: Exactly. So, you know, where it's targeted, the funding is working, um, but there are just a lot of high need students that are either in schools or districts that aren't, you know, seeing as much of a financial boon from the formula itself.
1: You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I was reading your thing, uh, your, your report, and it, it shows that high school student graduation rates are increasing. Uh, from 82.7% to 84.3%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot of people. Um, We're moving in the right direction. The last thing you mentioned is the test scores uh, for some of these high-need students are also improving at a faster rate than the rates for the the non-high-need students. So it's, again, the idea is to close the gap. This appears to be doing that to some extent. Um, We've got about 30 seconds left in the second, but I want to ask you this. How should we interpret the magnitude of these changes? Are these... Big changes, medium changes, small changes.
0: You know, I think the the kind of simple answer there is just when we look at the places that got a lot of funding. Um, these are big changes. Um, they're kind of, I'd say, modest to large increases, but the gaps are large as well. So even in these very you know high need districts, we estimate it might take fourteen or so years to close the gaps. Um, if you know, of course, a lot of assumptions. If these get, you know gains continue as they have, um, and that's just in the t- places that got most of the money.
1: But anyway and i did see that in your report the 14-year figure and that's kind of in some ways it gives you hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel if we just stay at this we can close this gap well up next we're going to talk about some of the policy implications and recommendations when it comes to state funding for k-12 education that conversation in a moment this is the maddie report welcome back we're talking about state targeting of k-12 funding and student outcomes with julian la who is with the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California?, uh, he's a research expert in k twelve education. and we're now talking about the policy implications and recommendations of this local control funding formula uh, approach. So the state's been using LCFF um, in k twelve education for about a decade now. Um, has it improved the equity and efficiency of uh, California's educational system?
0: You know, I think, In short, the answer has to be yes, Um, funding is more equitable across districts we target need now within the formula in a way that we didn't before. Um, districts have greater flexibility and they're not as constrained by the categorical programs that were governed by Sacramento. Um, And you might expect that that then improves the efficiency in which you know districts can deploy resources. And then when it comes to outcomes, we have a growing body of evidence um, that this extra funding led to improvements, particularly for the highest the high need students in the highest need districts in the state.
1: So, so the answer is, is, is at least a qualified yes. Um, let me ask you this though. You, you did come up with three broad recommendations uh, for policymakers, if they seeking to really improve the LCFF's ability to deliver on this promise of closing the educational achievement gap. So let's talk about each of them. The first recommendation you had was improve tracking and transparency, uh, particularly with this funding to, to high need students. What exactly do you, would you like to see done there?
0: Yeah, so well, we have data right now that tracks spending to the school site level um, that's collected by the federal government, not with the purpose of evaluating LCFF. So we really don't have state level data that's meant to do that. Um, and then, on top of that, when we look at the federal data, it shows that districts vary a lot in how much um, or how little they target spending to these high need school sites that have the students that generate it. And that's an area of concern. Um, but we really need better data if we want to say, you know, definitively that this district is, you know, targeting its high need students or that high need students are general in general are really seeing all of the additional dollars um, that they're raising.
1: It's the, the other. So the other issue, too, is this is probably going to require different accounting mechanisms, and that's probably going to result in a need for training of, of these uh, school district staffs on how to actually implement that, I would assume.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not without cost, right? It requires changes in district practices and reporting. Some districts already do this, um, so you know there'd be lesser changes, and and some districts might have a more difficult time. But of course, at the end of the day, I think this type of at least transparency um, is something that's necessary, you know, for parents or policymakers or researchers like myself to really fully understand where the dollars are going and are they reaching you know, the students for whom it's intended. Yeah, and
1: the reality is, and yes, there are a lot of high-need students in some of the larger districts, you know, Fresno Unified, Los Angeles Unified, but there was a lot, there are a lot of small districts in the Valley that are high-need districts that probably don't have that accounting and technical expertise, probably are going to need some help along these lines. Uh, the second recommendation you had was to consider funding mechanisms based on school site need. Uh, it's not school district, but school sites. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah, so this, comes back to the district versus school level distinction, right? So we target funding to districts and and districts get even more funding um, if they have high levels of need or concentration, um, so to say, but that's not true for schools, right? So there are some high need school sites that have concentrated poverty, concentrated student need, um, but they're in districts that maybe themselves uh, are a little bit more moderate or maybe even more affluent in need. So about 12% actually of the state's uh, highest need school sites with this concentrated need and poverty fall into this bucket and miss out on some additional funding.
1: Are you at all worried, though, that schools might, the school districts might segregate school sites, um, you know, concentrate the, the high need students in, in one or two schools?
0: And that's, yeah, exactly. That's the big worry of this. You know, it's, I think, part of the reason that we didn't do that from the beginning in LCFF. So any sort of you know, remedy here has to be very careful that it doesn't create a new incentive for districts, say, um, to segregate school sites even more. Um, that would, you know, obviously be worse than kind of any increase in funding. problem you know,
1: because because people are going to play to the rules, right? If They know what the rules are. They're going to they're going to play to their to their advantage. Last recommendation you had was uh, consider increasing supplemental grants and or lowering the threshold for concentration grants. Um, got just about forty five seconds left, but I just wanted to get your
0: thoughts on that. Yeah, so, you know, what we really meant by this is that it's, it'd be useful to kind of simplify and smooth out the formula. Right now, there's a big uh, kink in the formula, a big increase that happens at 55%. Um, and that, you know, now goes from, 50, or goes from basically a 20% to 65% increase in funding. Um, and so the districts that are really high need get a lot of funding. Those in the middle um, don't get as much additional funding. And so kind of smoothing out this formula, um, either by, you know, increasing supplemental grants or kind of lowering that threshold to a lower amount is something that would really enable the formula to reach more of the state's high-need students with this additional funding.
1: And you can, you can see all this by looking at the PPIC reports uh, by going to PPIC.org. I want to thank our guest, Julian LaFartoon, with the Public Policy Institute of California for joining us. And thank you for joining us. This has been the Maddie Report. We'll now look at some specific examples of local success with Carolyn Jones, a reporter with EdSource, a journalistic website devoted to California education, and Alma Lopez, a Livingston School District middle school counselor who was recently named the National Counselor of the Year by the American School Counselor Association. That conversation in a moment.
0: The Matty Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.
1: Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, there's no question that K 12 funding, when used wisely, can really make a difference in closing the achievement gap. Our next guest is Carolyn Jones, a reporter with EdSource who's written about some of the success stories, particularly those concerning local control funding formula. So welcome to the Matty Report Valley View Edition.
2: Hi, yeah, happy to be here, thank you.
1: So, you know, Dan Walters, uh, a well-recognized columnist that a lot of folks read, has written that quote, and this is a long quote, but I'll re- I wanna read-, I'll read this to you because I think it's important. He says, quote, although the local control funding formula directed more money to improve the education of kids deemed at high risk of failure, and many billions of dollars have been allocated to that purpose over the years there's scant evidence that the gap has been narrowed much less closed but then he says this quote that said there's anecdotal evidence that some school districts especially in rural areas are making noticeable strides in closing the achievement gap in smaller communities schools are seen as vital civic institutions rather than political arenas so parents and voters have influence that those in large cities lack unquote Now, one district you highlighted were the impressive educational gains made in Brawley, a farm town in Imperial County, California. What exactly happened there?
2: Well, what we found is that in Brawley, the high school principal there, Jesse Sanchez, um, a few years ago was taking a look at the writing skills of his seniors there and was a little bit appalled at, at how poor those skills were. And he just made an all out effort to improve writing skills among students there. And it amounted to training staff, getting you know teachers to buy in, students to buy in, families to buy in, and he just made it an absolute priority, using LCFF funding for professional development and so forth. And so now the students there do a little bit of writing in every single class every day, um, you know, even in PE.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were talking earlier. before we start taping a PE. I-, I can't even imagine what would I even write about in PE. What are they <laughs> writing about in PE?
2: Well, they're writing about weight training, muscle anatomy, you know, whatever they happen to be learning there. They're Mm -hmm. spending a little bit of time every day learning how to make arguments, learning how to cite sources, learning how to, you know, structure a paragraph.
1: um, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of truth to what you're saying because, you know, you don't have to be a genius uh, to be a good writer. What writing really takes is practice. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And so, uh, I think they hit the nail on the head here by having it in every single class.
2: Every single class, every day. You know, in the cooking class, they write about food safety. They read articles about different food topics, I mean, every day. And so, and the result has been really, really promising. The test scores for math and English language arts have really improved over the past few years, particularly um, the percentage of students who exceed the state standard now, which is great news still have a ways to go. Obviously, change does not happen overnight, but it's been really successful and students seem to really like it. And it's been, yeah, it's been a big success
1: there. Anything to get out of PE, if you can spend 15 minutes, (laughs) that's a good deal probably for most folks. Um, So let me ask you this, you know, uh, there's another success story that you've written about, and that's what's happening in Livingston, which is a Merced County town best known as the headquarters of uh, Foster Farms, a big poultry company. What exactly happened in uh, Livingston?
2: Well, Livingston's really interesting. Um, it's a small, you know, as you mentioned, rural agricultural community. Many families there are immigrants, um, farm workers, poultry workers. Um, very, you know, I think, you know, some large percentage are low income. The in 2006, a counselor was hired, Alma Lopez, uh, and she was assigned to be the only counselor for kindergarten through eighth graders. She was one counselor with 2,500 students. <laughs> And that's quite a
1: student-to-teacher ratio.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But she was undaunted, and she created these programs that would kind of, um, that she could use, you know, school-wide programs, system-wide programs, you know, she would try to see students individually, but that also set up these systems, you know, like do a whole anti-bullying program or suicide prevention, Um, uh, you know, everyday acts of kindness, that sort of thing. And, it was very successful and she got a lot of really positive feedback and so when lcff came around a few years later in the early 2010s you know she went to the superintendent and the school board and said hey you know can we have a little extra funding to hire some more counselors i think i can really do a lot of good work here and because she had this track record they said yeah sure let's do it let's invest you know let's make this a priority student wellness student mental health student success you know let's really invest in this and so little tiny livingston invested half a million dollars to hire more counselors at the k-8 through eight level which is a level that doesn't get a lot of attention usually you think counselors you think high school but there's oh, just mm-hmm. as much of a need for it for the younger kids and so now there's five counselors for the elementary schools and the middle school which still you know one to 500 isn't not great but
1: <laughs> it's, it's a lot better than one to
0: 2500 right that's for sure <laughs>
2: So now the counselors, you know, they, they work together, they, they move between the schools, they, they are able to see lots and lots of students individually, and they're able to work with families and connect families to local nonprofits like health clinics, food banks, um, you know, if they need legal assistance. So they, they've really been able to turn this into a really robust program. And the upshot there has been, you know, attendance is up, um, discipline is down, test scores are
1: up since they started doing this, there's been real results. Yeah, I was reading your article saying chronic absenteeism is down, suspension rate is lower than the state average, and the English and math standardized test scores are consistently improving. I mean, and that's what you want to see. I mean, these, these monies are long-term investments. You know, get kids on the right path. And there's a lot of research that shows that how kids do, you know, in the early grades, second, third, and fourth grade, really are a predictor of lifelong success. Are they going to graduate from high school? Are they going to go to college? Are they going to complete college? And these all become then productive members of society. So, you know, you're not going to see the return on investment right away, but over the long haul, you, you really do. Um, and it sounds like she's doing some really some marvelous work. So, you know, you also mentioned that um, Ms. Lopez has really impacted some individual students' lives. Um, can you give us a story or two about what's happened to some of her students?
2: Yeah, I talked to a couple of her former students. You know, one girl, the one story that really touched me was that a girl was in uh, eighth grade in middle school. And, you know, of course, we all know what middle school is like. It's rough, right. to one
1: word, rough.
2: Right. And this girl, you know, her, I think her grandmother had died and then her family right after that was gonna move out of state. And she was devastated. You know what that's like in middle school to move away from your uh-huh. friends. And I think the way she put it to me is that she felt like her life was ending. Her whole world was over and miss lopez went around to her classmates this girl's classmates and had them write little notes wishing this girl well and very discreetly gave them to her before she left without making a big fuss over it and so when the girl got to you know her new school out of state she opened this package and there were all these wonderful notes from her classmates and she said that made such a difference for her it got her through a very very difficult time And she still has those letters to this day. And then not only that, but Miss Alma kept, you know, kept in touch with this girl and kept, you know, even this girl, though this girl wasn't even in her school anymore. She kept calling her and checking in. Are you okay? How are things going? You know, she kind of pushed her to take
1: harder classes and, and, you know. And I I understand from your article that she's now a college student. This student, this girl is now a college student in Washington.
2: That's right. And she says if it was not for Miss Alma helping her and pushing her. You know that never would have happened, and I've heard that from a number of students. You know, people, well,
1: it's, like, it's, a really, it's a really critical time in a young person's life, um, where they can really go south if they don't get the right direction. And counselors have a big part in that, Um uh, what can have a big part in that. It sounds like, uh, Ms. Lopez, I mean, really went above and beyond. Uh, perhaps that's one of the reasons why she uh, won an award recently, but. Um, Let me ask you, there's another student you you mentioned, Alejandra, I think you you had talked about as well in your article. What happened with her?
2: It's a similar story. She just said that she was going through a really hard time in middle school, which is not unusual. Lots of people do. And again, without making a big fuss about it or making this girl feel, you know, drawing attention to her, Ms. Alma just said to her, you know, listen, come into my office anytime. And the girl did, she went in there and would sit and there'd be puzzles and magazines and a box of tissue and, and she would just go and hang out there and it, and it kind of just, it was just enough to sort of make her feel supported and that she had a safe place to go and kind of get through a difficult time. And again, similarly, that support kind of propelled her to um, succeed in high school. And now she goes to UC Santa Cruz, where she's a student studying. I think it's game design, And she says she's the first in her family to attend a UC. And again, it never would have been possible, she said, without that support.
1: Yes, it's, I think a lot of us can look back at a teacher or two, whether it's in grade, school, high school, or even college, that really had a big influence in our lives um, and really kind of redirected our lives in many ways. I know I can certainly think of, of certain folks. One in fact, one of the one of the professors I had in graduate school, um, I was his research assistant and I, I recently he sent. I found out he's still alive he's in his 90s and I sent him a note and he rem- it was very nice he sent a note back he remembered me and, and it was just really great to be able to thank him um for all his support because he was instrumental you know in, in my career uh so it's it's it that's really neat so all of you folks listening out there if you've had a teacher that's really impacted you in a positive way reach out to them it, it tell you it just it will make their day their year and you know great thing to send out uh uh, to them at, at any time. Uh, I want to ask you this, you know, Dan Walters he has also wrote specifically, he mentioned this story about uh, Alma Lopez. He said, quote, is she is living proof that kids from impoverished backgrounds can succeed if educators make an effort, uh, unquote. Do you think that he has a point when he argues that state politicians and education officials should insist that uh, that we follow those kind of successful efforts in Brawley and Livingston and other small communities, that we replicate them elsewhere, especially in big cities?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's little miracles happening every day at every school in California. Um, And a lot of it is possible because schools do have a little bit more uh, funding flexibility to to address the specific needs of their students. So I think these things are happening now. But when there's something really hits like this, like what's happening in Livingston or Brawley, you know, it's worth paying attention to and looking at and saying, you know, hey, maybe this can work elsewhere, too, particularly in similar communities. You know, it's yeah, simply- it,
1: it sounds like, you know, prior to the local control funding formula, we had something called categoricals. Um, And basically, you know, he, the simplest way to say this is he who has the gold makes the rules. Since the state was handing out the money in education, they got to decide how that money is spent. But when it's even well-intentioned, top down, you know, this kind of, best way to describe is kind of a tube sock mentality, one size fits all, is sometimes it doesn't fit some communities. And the idea, I think, behind local control funding formula is to give local districts the flexibility to spend those additional funds in a way that's going to be most beneficial to their students that they know best because they're working with them every day. Have you seen that in other districts?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what works in Modoc County is not going to work in Los Angeles County. And, you know, we talked earlier about a little bit about parent buy-in and community buy-in and community participation. You're going to get a lot more of that if if parents and community members feel that the school is listening to them and really tending to students' needs, which are going to be very different depending on what community you're in. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, uh, so you know, you talk to a lot of teachers out there. How are teachers feeling about And one of the things that, that people say is, you know, is a local control funding formula targeting we we talked about this earlier in the show targeting those really those high need students do you think the money is getting to where it needs to get to do they need to do a better job of targeting that money
2: well my understanding is that the money you know for the most part it does get where it needs to go but the number of high need students in california keeps growing and growing and in fact it's growing faster than the funding is growing and so there's there's a lag there and it's never quite enough and you know there's always a little bit of an imbalance there and also, you know, in some communities, some of the more affluent communities, parents chip in lots and lots of money through the PTA or through school bonds or what have you. And so there's, there's And it's way more than what low income schools get, even with all their extra money through LCFF. So yeah, there's still an imbalance there for
1: sure. Yeah, well, one thing that's just looking at some of my notes here, the Livingston District, uh, where Alma Lopez is, uh, is a counselor, 80% of the students are from low immigrant uh, families from Latin America and uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, that is a huge proportion of students that the students yes. have to deal with.
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and there's, you know, sometimes the, you know, the parents' English skills aren't that great, so it's hard mm-hmm. to communicate with the families or parents move around a lot for work or there's housing instability. There's lots and lots of needs. Students have a lot, you know, they have a lot going on.
1: It's hard sometimes, like I said, it's, it, these are long term investments, right? You're investing a student who's an eighth grader, winning to see that, that return. Well, probably not for four, or eight, or, or more years, right, down the line. But then those people become more productive uh, citizens. They're involved in their communities. So all this investment, hopefully, is, is focused on the right thing. And, and closing that education gap, that achievement gap, is, is so important. Uh, and I hope it sounds like the local control funding formula is, is really making a difference. You know, up next, we're going to talk to Alma, Alma Lopez, the National Counselor of the Year. She gets to tell her story in a moment. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. We'll have that conversation in a moment. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Our next guest is Ama Lopez, recently named as the National Counselor of the Year by the American School Counselor Association. She's the daughter of immigrants from Mexico and grew up in Lathrop, south of Stockton in the Central Valley. She's currently a middle school counselor at Livingston Middle School in Merced County. Welcome to the Maddie Report Valley Views Edition. Thank you. So um, I was reading about you, and I found out that you persuaded your bosses to devote a large portion of these LCFF funds to improving counseling services and expanding their reach, not just to students, but their families as well, many of which are, are poor. Why did you think that was so important?
3: Yeah, so as someone who grew up in, in a rural town similar to Livingston, in fact, Lathrop only had one stop site when I was a child growing up. And Livingston actually had the last stoplight um, or stop sign on Highway 99, you might remember. So when I would drive to Fresno, I would remember, oh, this is that town that has this stop sign on the freeway. Um, Anyway, as, you know, someone who grew up in Lathrop, I understood and, and lived those experiences that many small communities have, which are limited resources and limited access to those resources that are even there. And so the school becomes the main resource for, for these communities. And as a student, I spent a lot of time at school. And so not only was it important for my school to be, you know, a safe place where I could learn, but it was actually important that it was a place that my family could turn to and um, reach out and ask for services or information or guidance when it was needed. And so when I, you know, joined Livingston, um, I was one of two school counselors for 2,500 students. Um, I serviced all four schools, and my colleague primarily serviced the middle school. And we were doing the best that we could. You know, we were doing some pretty cool things, taking our students on uh, university campus visits. I remember, you know, we took um, bus loads of kids to Stanford and UC
1: Berkeley and UC I don't, Davis. I don't, think, I don't think some people who who whose parents may have gone to college understand that experience. You and I were talking before we started uh, taping Uh um, that both of us had parents that didn't go to college. And so when, when you're the first one that goes to college, it's a daunting experience. Yes. Yes, it was, it
3: is a very daunting experience. Um, And so for me, that was something that was very important to get our students onto these college campuses to be able to tour the campus and see themselves there and imagine themselves there. And so we would even fundraise to try and, you know, get five t-shirts so that we could raffle them on the bus ride on the way home. And we even moved to a, a place where we were able to invite our parents to some of the more local college campuses to also get an experience themselves and understand kind of
1: this foreign space, right, of the university. No, the, the, the idea, though, the idea behind the local control funding formula was to provide more funding for school districts with these high-need students. Does that, has it really made a difference in your mind?
3: Yes, yes. So for me and for my district, you know, when that money came in, my superintendent, Andres Zamora, invited me to a conversation and to talk about, you know, what is the role of school counselors and what can we do? And we had a big conversation and I was at the table and I was able to say, hey, if we had a school counselor in each of our buildings, here are some of the things that we could do. You know, we can have our help our students achieve that academic success and help them and guide them into finding those resources and answering questions for parents as to how to get to homework, help, you know, homework help or how important it was to read every night with their kids. And we're able to help with that social emotional development that especially in middle school is so crucial. And then of course explore that college and career opportunities. So When I had this conversation with my superintendent, he was really pretty amazing. He listened and then he agreed and he said, let's do it. And I'll never forget, you know, he said, Alma, I'm going to invest half a million dollars in what you're saying. We've got to make this work. And so I researched the American School Counseling Association's national model and I said, Hey, there's this guy that I could use that we could use. That's going to help ensure that we service all of our students. Intentionally, based on the data, um, and equitably, right? And those are all things that are super important in the in
1: well, the it's, school building. It's also it's, it's planting the seed and, and having a more of a strategic, long vision. Not just what is the student doing on this next test, but what are they doing with their lives? And we need to plant those seeds and give plant those ideas in their heads. Hey, college is a possibility, and then they begin to think that way. And the result is productive citizens in our community um you know with good jobs and being involved in their schools and whatnot so all great things and a lot of it uh, due to your work which is which is being recognized like i said by the american school counselors association you know i was interested to read that um when you were in middle school in the central valley you Mm -hmm. learned about college for the first time not from your teachers or counselors but when you saw someone wearing a Fresno state t-shirt until then i guess you didn't really know what college was you went on to earn both an undergraduate and graduate degree from Fresno State, uh, and as I said earlier, you know you were just named by the American School Counselor Association as the National Counselor of the Year. What an honor! Um, it's really amazing. You're the first Californian, the first Latina, and one of the first rural counselors to win that honor. It's an, um, must have been an amazing journey. So, who and what inspired you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I. It has been quite a journey. I'm absolutely humbled by this opportunity. You know, I think back to the little girl that I was in Lathrop growing up and, you know, trying to kind of figure things out. Um, and I saw this shirt, you know, that a student was wearing and, and I was like, huh, I wonder, right? And that was really the question and, and the it. But when I think about, you know, who inspired me, it, there's a lot of people, but it definitely begins with my parents who, like you mentioned, immigrated to the United States, and they were only 18 and 21. And, you know, that's that's about the age I started college, right? Just a young 18-year-old. Um, but they moved to this country in search of that American dream for their growing family. That, that meant that they had to leave their own family behind, their own parents and their brothers and sisters um, to come to this country. And they did it at a, such a young age. And they struggled with, you know, securing housing and securing employment, but they worked hard every day and they persevered. And they supported my siblings in every way that they knew how to do so. My dad, a construction laborer, commuted to the Bay Area daily um, in order to provide for us. And I know he had this green pickup truck with no air conditioning and he would leave the house, you know, at 5 a.m. and get home well after 6 p.m. And so that meant that My mom would stay home with her five kids and, you know, she was the one that was primarily responsible for, for our day in and day out education at home. And she did the best that she could with five kiddos. Um, So when I decided to, to go to college, it was almost an accident. I saw this t-shirt and I thought, huh, maybe I could go to Fresno state. I didn't know anything about college and I didn't know anything even about Fresno. I had never even been there. And I remember asking my parents, my dad specifically, for a ride to college. And I asked him, Mark, the day, you know, the Friday before starting school Monday, I was like, hey, can I get a ride to college? And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go there, you know. And they gave me that ride and they helped me move in to Graves Hall right there at Fresno State. And they wished me well. And whenever they could, they would give me a couple hundred bucks. And that wasn't too often. My sister, just a couple years older than me, would also give me a couple hundred bucks whenever she could, and I signed the student loan checks every time I needed to, you know, and Fresno State actually gave me an opportunity to work um, as a work-study student, so I remember I worked two years for the Sid Craig School of Business. For $4.25, you know. Um, and I learned a lot there from the professor. By the way, I was
1: gonna be clear about that. We were paying minimum wage, and we no violations <laughs> there back in the day. That's what
3: <laughs> that's what it was, yeah. And you know, um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but but I wanted to try something different. And my parents, you know, they came to this country and they tried something different and they wanted something better for their kids. And so for me. That was the inspiration,
1: right? Well, if my parents, it sounds like, it sounds like you inherited that pioneering spirit, um, yes. from, from your parents. And you know, and the stories actually are very similar. My parents high school degree, but they always pushed educate. Well, my parents always pushed education. Mm-hmm. You have to go to college, even though they and I really didn't know what it was about. And you know, like you, you, you end up on a mm-hmm. campus, and it's it's. It's kind of scary, right? You, you know, you know, where's the classroom? You know, what books do I have to read? Um, but then you learn, and you, and you survive, and you do well. But it's just amazing. Your journey is something that we're all very proud of. Um, and you know, when you look at Fresno State, it's, it has a national reputation of helping uh, elevate the students uh, that, that, that graduate uh, at Fresno State. And so it's, uh, you're a prime example of what, what an education here can really do for folks. And by the way, and we talked about this earlier, the impact you're having, not just on the students you work with, but their families and their relatives, because they all see the examples of being successful. So I want to thank you for all your hard work. Congratulations on your award. Thank you for being with us today. I want to thank our other guest, Carolyn Jones of EdSource, and again, Alma Lopez, this year's National Counselor of the Year, who works for the Livingston School District and who undoubtedly is the pride of the Valley in Fresno State. Thanks for being with us.
0: The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.